Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition put forth by Walter Lippmann during World War II that U.S. foreign and national security policy is the shield that protects our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I am a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center, and a Bulwark contributor. And I'm joined, as I am every week, by my partner, Elliot Cohen. Elliot, how was your Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving was great. Uh, And uh, we're going to have an even better follow-up as we celebrate my younger daughter's wedding. The house was crawling with kids, grandchildren, and a dog. So we're we're all good. And I hope uh, your Thanksgiving was good too, Eric. It was great. It was uh, full of family and lots of wind where we were. But other than that, it was great. Our guest today is Brian Catullus, Vice President for Policy and Senior Fellow at the Middle East Institute, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Center for American Progress with enormous government experience at State Department, Defense Department, the NSC. And uh, we've got him here to talk to us about public opinion and national security, a subject that he has written about. Brian, welcome. Great to be with you. Well, let's get started by uh, talking about your piece in The Liberal Patriot uh, about uh, the fragmentation of public opinion and national security. T- tell us a little bit about what your thinking was and what prompted you to write it. Well, first, um, let me just say something about The Liberal Patriot, which is a Substack publication that I, I co-edit and founded at the start of this year with some uh, friends of mine. And it's independent from um, my uh, affiliations at the Middle East Institute and Center for American Progress. It's just my voice and the voice of uh, three other guys, Rui Teixeira, John Halpin, and Peter Jewell. And people can sign up for it at the Liberal Patriot Substack. And the the, the basic premise in that idea, in that article that we had, um, that I wrote, was looking at public opinion that's out there. And there's a lot of public opinion surveys from the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations and Pew um, surveys. And there's a number of data points that if you look carefully at the the bigger picture sort of storyline of what's going on with the American public and public opinion about foreign policy, um, it's often the case that, that different advocacy groups seize sort of certain headlines for their own particular interests. And maybe I fall into that trap as well, but I'm more of an analyst. And what I saw in the data was these enormous swings uh, when you went from presidency to presidency um, in terms of attitudes towards how uh, the president was doing and party affiliation. So when you had Obama in there, you had Republicans essentially pretty sour on how Obama was doing on foreign policy. And similarly, I think under George Bush, Democrats were sour that Foreign policy increasingly has become a partisan wedge issue like so many other issues. And I think it's the case that when, when you delve into the numbers and you, you look at sort of issues uh, that people are presented with, uh, the public opinion, their, their attitudes on issues aren't that far off, right? So quite often in my interpretation of this, there are several ways to analyze this. But the first, there are certain political entrepreneurs, if you will, that are using foreign policy as, as a wedge issue in our politics, that quite often most Americans are pretty rationally ignorant on many of the complicated issues like nuclear proliferation or, you know, the war in Yemen or things that are pretty complicated, but they do take their cues from those who are, you know, elite opinion farmers. And 
I think what we've seen, particularly since the end of the Cold War, but especially after the the post 9-11 period, is just this hyper-partisanship that has arisen. It's certainly, I think, gotten worse in the last couple of years, but it's not a new thing. It began, I think, under George W. Bush's administration, and I think both of you served in that administration. And I think back at some of my earlier work at the Center for American Progress when I worked there and joined early on in 2005, 2006, a lot of what what was driving yes was yes and analysis on the situation in Iraq, but then there was also different forces in the political arena and the advocacy arena that were in a sense pulling America apart. So the bottom line in that piece uh, that I wrote in the Liberal, Liberal Patriot was essentially saying, look, if you look at the the bigger picture, what's going on here is that America is dividing itself on many issues, not just social and cultural issues or economic issues, but on foreign policy. And on the foreign policy front, it actually has its own risks, which we can talk about, uh, and, and dangers in terms of using foreign policy and national security as a wedge issue in our politics. So j- just to, to clarify that a bit, uh, Brian, I mean, it, you know, I, I think I'm hearing you say two different things. One is that, you know, on the, a lot of the basic things, uh, there's consensus. And I, I think that's right. You know, you look at um, Biden administration policy towards China, it's really not noticeably different from Trump administration uh, policy towards China. I mean, there's some important differences of detail and emphasis, but they're pretty much in the same place. And I would agree that actually on a lot of other things, on the whole, there's a reasonable amount of consensus, but there's a, it's almost like a, a kind of a pretense of partisan disagreement when in fact people are quite often in the same place. And would you agree with that? Or do you think that what we're seeing now are really genuine deep partisan disagreements about fundamental issues of foreign policy, like the nature of our overseas commitments or who our allies should be and things like that. I Look, if you look carefully, and we went out in 2019 before the pandemic at the Center for American Progress and did a project of active listening outside of the think tank bubble. So we went and uh, listened in first focus groups and qualitative research and then did a series of polls of our own to test a lot of these propositions. And what we found is one... You know, first, most Americans don't actually understand a lot of the concepts that, uh, and the words that that foreign policy experts use uh, to describe what we're doing in the world. Um, and this is where, again, I think uh, Trumpism we found in this research it it didn't have a strong base of support. It was about uh, supported by a third of the American public, which is alarming. You know, the America First idea. But people understood what it was, right? And quite often, things like phrases like American exceptionalism and other things, people just didn't understand what that what that was. So, to, I mean, to answer your question first, there, I think there's a solid basis um, for a consensus um, for America's role in the world, and and, and to, to lead in in key ways to protect Americans, to advance our economic interests, and there isn't that strong of a appetite for a retrenchment among the American public. In part, what we heard in this research, especially in the qualitative, when we go out, people understand that America is connected to the world. And this is pre-pandemic. So like, I think they get it now completely in spades. And they understand that their jobs and America's competitive position in the world directly impacts their livelihood. So there isn't, you know, uh, Charlie Cupshin has a really interesting book out on isolationism. Um, and, you know, uh, Charlie, I, I respect, and I, I think he makes some interesting arguments there, but I think it's out of sync with where most Americans are at. And he even tried to use some of our data there 
from the America Drifts survey. And, you know, again, people can pick and choose which which data points they, they like to use. But what we found was that there's just a, a general consensus, a strong majority of Americans support America staying engaged in the world. They support, you know, military spending. They'd like to see it uh, moderated in a sense. And I think what, what they're missing from their leaders is a clear uh, argument, a clear strategic argument that, Maybe we had at a particular era during the Cold War, or maybe we had in certain years, you know, after the 9-11 attacks, but there's this sense of drift that I think the American public is very much receptive to staying engaged in the world. And a lot of the sort of boutique ideas, which are on the margins, you know, that you hear from libertarian voices or from the so-called progressive left, which are about pulling back from the world, not much, uh, not much of a consensus there amongst the American public for that. So if if I could just uh, follow up that, you know, I can see in this conversation, we're going to have lots of rabbit holes that uh, yeah. Eric and I would like to uh, go down, go down with you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're very interesting in many ways, one of which is you are, and tell me if I'm mischaracterizing you, a fairly traditional kind of center left foreign policy expert, you know, affiliated with the or associated with, I should say, the Democratic Party, but very much in that kind of centrist consensus that both uh, Eric and I, I think, have been part of. Um, and A, w- would you say that's basically right? Yeah, that's right. But if you look back at my work carefully, and to be honest in full disclosure, when I first joined the Center for American Progress, I joined after having come out of Iraq, uh, working on projects, trying to listen to Iraqis, I thought the Iraq war was a strategic failure and disaster. And I actually wrote things that now in 2021, um, I, I support some of it, but then I see the, the, the shortcomings in a lot of it, particularly how the withdrawal that Obama implemented in 2011, how that played out, how we talked about it, the implications that had. So, so yeah, I think by default, that's where I've landed. The, the challenge I have with even the word centrist these days is that I think we're in a period of political uh, discombobulation, if you will, Um, um, meaning that these categories don't make much sense that we used to describe what was going on, you know, back in the 1990s or in the 2000s, 1990s, when I came of age and became really interested in the world. And I think there are new categories. And, you know, I could talk about the different categories we've proposed. Uh, We we could talk about the, the recent Pew survey that has their own topologies, if you will. So, yeah, but I, I don't disagree with that. I just think that there's so much that's in flux right now that it's hard to categorize. Um, yeah. I think that's, very, that's a very fair point, I, I think. So let me just ask you one follow-up question, then I'll uh, get sure. out of Eric's way here. What, why do you think the retrenchers, or if you prefer isolationists or neo-isolationists or whatever term you want to use, ha- have not actually gotten much of a purchase? I mean, I, what strikes me about them is um, it's primarily been driven by intellectuals. Uh, maybe intellectuals in general just don't get to influence American politics very much because this country isn't France. But it, it strikes me that th- this has been a, a strong, articulate point of view. And yet I agree with you. It doesn't seem to have gotten a grip. I think even though most Americans um, don't follow the details on national security, I think they can sense a talking point versus uh, someone who's actually done the research on a particular problem, right? Like an expertise, though it's much maligned in recent years, is, is, is actually still valued and people can sense it. And when you look at a lot of 
the arguments made by retrenchers, it's arguments against something as opposed to in favor of something, right? So you point to any number of the products where actually a lot of the critiques that they have to offer of the so-called blob, you know, this phrase that Ben Rhodes popularized, um, they, you know, they have, I think, very, very valid critiques of both the Republican and Democratic so-called establishment. But what they don't have is an actual clear action plan of what do you do about things. And the other thing is that oftentimes it's stuck a bit in the past. If you've noticed sort of this, and I use this phrase so-called um, because there are some progressives who call themselves progressives on foreign policy, but they're anything but, meaning they're, they're actually looking in the past and quite often stuck somewhere between 2005 and 2015, um, between like the Iraq war and railing against Dick Cheney and uh, and their advocacy for the Iran nuclear deal of six years ago. And quite often they're not offering really important ideas on the national security challenges that we're facing now and will face, you know, in the coming years, cybersecurity, uh, disinformation, uh, freedom in a genuine sense. And I hope we can talk about this is that a lot of um, progressives or liberals or self-styled, I would say, misappropriate the label because they're not really looking towards the 2020s. They're actually fighting battles from the past and not actually offering input and ideas. So back to, sorry, to to your original sort of question is I think the American public can sense when someone has a plan um, and when someone doesn't, if someone just has more of a critique and wants to tear things down. And I think, again, on a lot of these complicated issues, Americans are more inclined to try to build coalitions here at home understanding that the world is sort of a complicated, ugly place at times, and that simply narrow casting to different, you know, groups that only get a small slice of the conversation or, or understand a, a particular issues from, from one, one standpoint, they, they know that that's not a good formula for how we approach the world, that if we divide ourselves on key issues, and I think we're going to prop maybe see a round of another round of this on Iran, the debates about Iran are pretty arcane for most Americans. Uh, we polled attitudes on Iran and most Americans have a pretty negative view on Iran. They sort of get like the, the role that Iran has played. And yes, Iran is a negative image for a range of reasons. So that, you know, I think a lot of people in the elite political debates just try to use these to advance sort of narrow agendas as opposed to build coalitions here at home. Yeah. A point you make um, in your piece, Brian, is that it's the perceived collective failures over the last 20 years of both liberal and conservative internationalism that created a space for the rise of uh, you know, uh, populist nationalism, as you put it, on both the left and the right. And you're, I think, you know, quite right to point out that this is a phenomenon you see at both, you know, on the wings of both uh, political parties, although it's, I think, a lot stronger in some sense in the Republican Party than it is in the, yeah. in the Democratic Party as well as you talk about the rise of new critical voices. So how do you see that that space having been filled up? And when you talk about, you know, you talk about how it's public opinion has been fragmented. You also talk about the need to, uh, you know, create a kind of new narrative uh, that would support American international engagement in the world. And you say that we, the starting point would be what you call an inclusive nationalism. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, how do you see that playing out and, yeah, that, that's the premise of why uh, uh, John Rui, Peter, and I set up the Liberal Patriot and trying to craft ideas. And if you look at the articles there, it's a mix of foreign policy, but it's also importantly about half of the articles are about domestic and social and cultural policy here at home. 
from uh, an inclusive nationalist perspective. And my, my, our worry is, and we've written longer articles about this, uh, George Packer's recent book also talks about this, is that America is just divided against itself in, it, with competing narratives um, from, from different sects or tribes, if you will. And it's the sort of thing that I saw in the Middle East when I lived there um, in different places, that this, this sense that of an idea that bound us together and was never sort of uh, perfect, especially for a lot of people left behind. Um, instead of sh struggling together towards a more universalist, uh, uh, inclusive identity, what we've seen are, are voices rise on both the left and the right that have divided us. And I think some of this is a reaction um, of, from the left is in reaction to the rise of Trumpism and what Trump did to the GOP. Um, so as a counter to that, and you see this almost every day in the op-ed pages and other places, people on the left who essentially say, look, we got to fight fire with fire. Like if you read between the lines, they're essentially saying that there's a white Christian nationalist, you know, or white supremacist uh, strand in the Republican Party. It's the dominant strand. The only way to defeat that um, is to uh, fight back with our own sort of sense of defense of other identities that have been aggrieved and have been left behind. And that, you know, uh, I understand that perspective. I actually feel like it's a road to further fragmentation, though. It's, it's a road to nowhere. So the need for a new narrative first starts at home. And I think first also starts with listening to people uh, who are real, real Americans, like not, not just in certain congressional districts or here in the Beltway or New York or Berkeley or other places. It's actually getting out. And I'm, I'm originally from uh, central Pennsylvania and see family members all the time who are of different uh, party affiliations. And part of it is just trying to listen and understand the other perspective, which is active listening is something we I think we've lost uh, as, as a nation, we're, we, we're more bound to sort of pontificate. So I think this inclusive nationalism is remi reminding ourselves that America really is a special country. Um, it's unlike any other and founded on a set of ideas. And yes, we can, and it's important to question sort of the flaws from the beginning to the middle and to the present day. Um, but that unless we work together as Americans and try to build stronger communities and reach across different lines, uh, then we'll actually be on a road actually to, that's quite destructive. And I fear we're still sort of on that path, right? Despite Biden winning this election, and I think he projects more of an inclusive uh, patriotism, if you will, uh, towards the country, you still see that there's strong negativity in our own politics and in our own communities. And I think the only, I don't know what the remedy is beyond continuing to sort of struggle to to reach out to others that you fundamentally disagree with and listen to them and debate issues civilly. Because otherwise, you know, I, I do fear we're going to be on this precipice of both the GOP and Democratic Party uh, falling apart and nothing sort of binding us together at the national level. You know, uh, Eric and I were, uh, every time we took this uh, Pew uh, a quiz to see what slice of the foreign policy spectrum we uh, fell on, we both turned out to be stressed <laughs> sideliners. And I must yeah. say, we do feel sidelined and we do feel very stressed. I mean, the thing that, stri that strikes me about what you've just described, and I completely agree with it, is we have a situation where, on the one hand, it does look as if political power, at least in the short run, is going to move more to the Republican Party and to what people call conservatives, although it's not quite 
conservatism as I understood it. Um, if you look at what's probably going to happen uh, in the House, possibly the Senate, to some extent the courts, that's on the one hand. And yet cultural power and uh, institutional power is much more firmly in the hands of what one can loosely call the progressive left, whether you know, you're looking at mainstream news uh, media or universities and so on. That, that's a very crude picture, I know, and there are a lot of yeah. exceptions and qualifications, but that does seem to me to be the, the fundamental set of circumstances that we're in, and it, neither development strikes me as in any way healthy. No, I, I don't think so, but I think it comes back to, again, trying to think through where most Americans live and where, where their mental space is. So in the research that we did uh, on U.S. attitudes, public attitudes on foreign policy, the America Drift Survey, what we found is that, you know, the leading news source for most Americans on foreign policy was their local television news. Uh, it wasn't foreign affairs and foreign policy. And when you think about it, if you you look at, you know, you go back to where I'm from in Pennsylvania, maybe it gets a minute uh, on the local news. And quite often it's the cemetery and uh, visits of a president overseas or something like that, or something that's quite awful. Um, and when you think about that from the perspective, it's not people listening to your podcast or you know, any, any other reading foreign policy publications and things like this. But, but people, again, there's not this strong retrenchment isolationist strand. They want somebody to explain the world to them, especially... In moments of crisis like the pandemic or when we've had terror attacks and things like this. Um, but that's not being communicated in, in a clear way, you know, um, from, 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 from the center and, and in ways that people understand. So I think a key part of this inclusive nationalism when it comes to foreign policy is trying to get out of the bubbles a bit more. I mean, I know there are different councils and world affairs councils, but really trying to connect more with um, people who understand that their fates are tied to, to what's going on in the world. Like, you know, in our family, we actually have a family farm that was deeply affected uh, by the Trump trade war in China. And like, you know, they may not understand, the people who run the farm with us um, may not understand all the intricacies of US-China relations. And we're going to talk more about China. But they understand, you know, the costs of having extra taxes, um, tariffs and, and trade wars. They understand that a tariff is a tax. <laughs> exactly, 100%. And we often, it's, it's not a new um, problem, but, but we often speak in terms that people just don't understand. And I actually think that, you know, you look back in our history, there are some who are better than others. I'm pretty partial to FDR and his, his uh, four freedoms. I think it's one of the more brilliant articulations of what we stand for in the face of what were ultimate threats to our values. And it wasn't just in reaction to it. It wasn't that we're going to disrupt, dismantle, and defeat Nazi Germany. It was we're going to stand for these four fundamental freedoms. And it rallied people in ways that, you know, he was facing his own isolationism from the left and the right. And, I, you know, I know he's a controversial political figure for a range of reasons. But um, he, he actually captured sort of a moment for the American public. And, yes, it was a particular time where it was, I think, easier to, to describe what the North Star and the threats really were, but I, I don't think it's that impossible to do these days. You know, you're talking, uh, you know, essentially about presidential leadership there, uh, which is something you touched on earlier. And 
You have a, a, a very interesting critique uh, of the Biden administration's, in your view, failure to come up with a, a narrative. I mean, they've got a slogan, as you point out, which is foreign policy for the middle class, but it hasn't been articulated in the way you know that you just put it with FDR's four freedoms. I want to come back to that, though, because before we kind of move there, I want to draw out the string a little bit on something you said about American uh, exceptionalism, because I do think uh, you see that that is in the Pew poll is a little bit under assault. In other words, there are uh, fewer people today who will say the United States is, you know, a, you know, a leading or the leading nation among, you know, nations. And that's not all of American exceptionalism. Obviously, you were touching the more, you know, the deeper philosophical principles on which that is based, uh, those judgments. But I, I do want to draw you out a little bit on, on the American exceptionalism, because you also talked about the importance of freedom and democracy in, in American foreign policy. And one reason why I think the restraint or the retrenchment crowd tends to uh, not get much resonance with the larger American public is that it is so out, out of tune with traditional American values of support for democracy uh, and freedom uh, abroad. And although some of that you know came into disrepute, as you point out during the Bush and and uh, and the even Obama years, it's still an important part of I think Americans, you know, average Americans' self conception of what the country is and what it ought to stand for uh, in the world. And I think it's one reason, for instance, that uh, the Kissinger Nixon experiment in real politique was really not a lasting, you know, accomplishment. They wanted to build a new structure of peace, according to you know Dr. Kissinger and President Nixon. Are they, they failed to do it in part because there was a lot of resistance. I think even Kissinger would admit there's a lot of resistance among Americans to a very narrowly construed sort of interest-based national security policy um, that it has to also be married up with values. Would you agree with that, that that's a, a big part of this failure on the part of the restrainers to get more traction? Oh, 100%. And sometimes they episodically use human rights and values, but episodically and I think high, uh, highly selectively uh, in different ways. So it's interesting to me that, you know, Iran is one of the biggest human rights abusers in the world. And there's often, in, in, in my view, you know, people just pull punches on that. And we shouldn't pull punches in any case from Saudi Arabia to Egypt to Iran. We should have the confidence in our own system. And I think to, to actually voice these criticisms and then try to deal uh, diplomatically uh, with them and not only voice criticisms, but then get action and get improvement on those those records. It's sort of what we did during the Cold War. You guys know from the Reagan administration as well, um, where you could actually, you know, engage your adversary in diplomacy, but then also call out the abuses. And a lot of the structures that were formed here, uh, the democracy promotion structure, some of which I worked in, in the 1990s in the National Democratic Institute and things like this, these are, I think, important um, uh, manifestations of not just not not, not U.S. foreign policy, but the expression of the will of the American public. And why uh, the American public largely comes from immigrants, right? I mean, most of us are, and uh, population of Native Americans is, is quite small as a percentage. And I think about this, and I'm thinking about this in relation to my more uh, my most one of my recent articles with the Liberal Patriot. Right. I feature Lithuania um, right now. And for those who aren't following Lithuania in this bigger battle of freedom and democracy, it's something that's near and dear to my heart. I'm Lithuanian-American, come from 
My grandfather came from Lithuania at the time as an immigrant. And, you know, right now it's in the crosshairs, not only of Russia, but China. Um, and uh, going back to what I said earlier, most Americans aren't aware of that. I'm aware of it because I get paid to follow foreign policy and in the news and I'm interested in it. And I, But I think if you de- describe this, as I, as I do in this recent article, of what they're up against, most Americans are like, you know what? We don't like to be bullied around and we shouldn't see anyone be bullied around with someone who doesn't listen to uh, his own people, whether it's uh, Putin or uh, Xi in China. It's just a basic American instinct of standing up for the, the person that actually is being bullied around. And I think the challenge here in recent years, quite obviously, you guys worked in the Bush administration, is that you know, unfortunately, I understand why it's the case is that the notion of freedom and democracy protection has been wrapped up with this notion of military intervention, right? And the fact that George W. Bush at one point called his um, uh, overall strategy the freedom agenda, and he his core argument, as you know well, was that we're going to defeat terrorism by expanding freedom. Um, and, you know, during that era, I, I supported some aspects of that, saw the failures of imp- implementation. But I think what we've seen, especially in the last 10 years, is that you've had this knee-jerk response to, oh, you want to support freedom in the world. That means you must be militaristic. And that's not the case in 99% of the fights for freedom in the world, right? Um, but... That's the problem I think you've had. And I think some of it is really, I don't want to get into it too much, but complicated by the Arab uprisings in 2011 and the very uneven and in some cases ham-handed response of the Obama administration. So yes, I think the Bush administration made a lot of mistakes, certainly in Iraq and in other places, did not achieve the ideals of expanding freedom. And if you look at the Freedom House metrics, you know, uh, freedom in the world has been on the decline since 2005. But then we, we found in 2011, 12, 13, in the Arab uprisings, of especially Syria, this instance where actually implementing it and standing behind the ideals of protecting freedom and protecting human life uh, as a basic fact, you know, helping the, the notion, advance the notion of the responsibility to, to, repec- or protect, to protect, if anyone remembers that, responsibility to protect, um, it's sort of not even there anymore. Talk about stress sideliners. That, that concepts have been pushed to the sidelines. So I think, uh, uh, just to sum, um, I think things have been uh, complicated by the fact that, yes, U.S. military interventions have been costly and lengthy, but people equate that with, oh, you know, freedom uh, uh, protection or advancing democracy in the world. And that's actually not true. It's not where most of the tough fights are in advancing democracy in the world. So c- could I just tie that to uh, one of the, one of the, these these uh, pieces, which I uh, very much admired, on, on the Biden administration's failure to come up with a narrative for American policy towards China, that, you know, something that's clear, that makes sense to average Americans. Now, I mean, you, inv- you invoked Reagan. Reagan didn't just stand up now and again for human rights in the Soviet Union. It was a central part of his strategy towards the Soviet Union. It was in some ways playing offense, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Gorbachev teared down this wall, support for solidarity in Poland, which was a, you know, a covert or at least a quasi-covert 
action uh, designed to undermine the uh, the communist grip in Eastern Europe. Could you talk us through what an approach to China that would make sense that you think would resonate with the majority of, of the American people? I mean, I think what we have now is a situation where you know, people see what goes on in Hong Kong, they don't like it. They may or may not have heard about the Uyghurs. If they have heard about it, they certainly don't like it. Chinese seem to be kind of uh, bullies. And then there's, of course, the, you know, the very basic fact of industrial uh, manufacturing jobs moving to China with the, the resentment that's come along with that. But that, how do you pull all that together into a narrative that actually can set us up for a contest that's in some ways more difficult even than the Cold War? I think it's got to start with um, the notion that America's number one in the world in terms of its its economy, it still is, and its values system though it has challenges, is certainly a lot better than what China's been implementing around the world. And then you've got to back it up. It's not just the narrative of that, you know, we're going to win in this uh, broader competition. It's not just about making your life better, but then also standing up for the basic freedoms here at home and then um, in key parts of the world where it's contested in places like Europe, Africa, and Asia. And again, that does not mean militarily. It means you know, there are some economic plays that I think we're reluctant to use right now. Like I, I'm very fond of Catherine Tai, who is our U.S. trade representative. And I think she's an underanalyzed figure in our U.S. foreign policy right now, because I think she sort of gets the need to move beyond just the Trump plays of uh, trying to put China on the defensive and that we need we need to actually go on the offense and get our act together, if you will. So if you look at some of the things that have been done in the what you, people used to call global economic space, where she's trying to get Europe and Asia together on certain key issues uh, to, to stand up uh, to China. But what's missing right now is a clear, you know, she went to Asia recently, and there's not a clear game plan in terms of how we're going to bind our countries together. We, we step back from the TPP, and there's not an animating concept yet that's coming from this administration. But the first, I think, piece and element has got to be economic. And then second, it can't just be solely economic. It can't be, we're going to make your life better. It's it's also that, you know, a lot of these uh, values that are under assault here internally in, in the U.S. and some of it coming from our own uh, political leaders and some of the political movements here. Um, it has autocratic tendencies. It's authoritarian. These are the sorts of things that when somebody captures a system like China has in the China Chinese Communist Party, you, you basically have to articulate that this is why it's important, I think, to stand up in the face of threats that Taiwan is facing and other democratic nations. And look, if you look at it right now, if you look at the bipartisan delegations that have been going pretty regularly to Taiwan, even if you could fault the lack of a narrative, a clear narrative, either coming from Trump or now Biden, there's there's still, like I think, a bipartisan consensus to essentially say, look, we need to send that support it doesn't have to be, come down to just military and war and all of this. And I think one of the challenges in this moment, in this fragmented politics that we've been talking about, the identity politics of the right and the left, is that you get all of these counter reactions in our own political debate on China that challenge um, the, the, the project of creating a, a, a consensus and that, a, more, a broader national consensus. One is just the real concerns of warmongering and this is a new Cold, cold War, right? Um, and people don't want to go down, you know, the path of what is, I think, hyperbolic sort of World War III. That's one challenge. The second challenge is, um, 
and this came up a little bit in the spring when we've had horrific attacks on Asian Americans here. And people worry that if you demonize China uh, and the regime in China, you're somehow doing that to Chinese uh, Americans or those of Asian uh, background. And I think, again, we have to be very precise this, uh, about what we're talking about here. We're talking about a regime and not the people or people who come from China. And I do think that in the Trump administration, including under Pompeo and others, there was you know, code language that was used that was quite dangerous that, uh, you know, really, I think, made people unsafe here. But you can you can send a message to the American public about China that essentially isn't about getting into World War Three and is not about, uh, uh, you know, fear mongering or hate mongering against different identity groups here in the U.S. It says that America has a better system. We're, we're number one still and we need a better action plan. And the only way to get to that action plan is actually if we if we come together and build coalitions here at home. And that's I tried to argue that in the piece is that the challenge is when you have, you know, it's important to have a diversity of voices in all of our political debates. But when it becomes so vociferous that we divide each other, that we reduce relationship capital and trust among our leaders, we see this in Congress or among our thought leaders in the think tank community. I think countries like China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, they exploit those divisions for their own purposes. They, they look at open societies and then they accentuate those divisions and people then are incentivized in some sort of way to, to, to double down on that. And that's, it comes back to my, my broader point of the, and why we did the liberal Patriot, we're doing it, is to talk about, okay, look, we may have tactical policy disagreements on Iran or different elements of China, but unless we remember that we're all on the same team here, <laughs> that we're, we're in a country that is formed on an idea. And yes, we can debate some of those ideas. But unless we remember that fundamental, I think we'll continue to hamper our ability to project um, power in the world to, to have the political will to do that. And then to have the sense in the world that, uh, that, that people in other countries know what we're actually doing. You know? And I think right now we're just seen as sort of off the field right now. So, Brian, let me pick up a little bit on some of what you've been talking about, particularly on Taiwan, and I think you can make the same point about Hong Kong. There does seem to be a kind of inchoate consensus on China, you know, that that crosses partisan lines. As you pointed out, there have been a lot of bipartisan you know, delegations going to Taiwan, even as we've got a lot of Chinese overflights in the in the air defense information zone around yeah. Taiwan, et cetera. And that seems to reflect, I think, a kind of implicit understanding that a lot of people have that in an era where we where international relations are, are seem to be uh, characterized more by kind of great power competitions with the United States and Russia and China uh, in a more complicated setup than we had really during the Cold War, that there is an ideological dimension to this. Uh, and it's got to do with authoritarians versus, you know, uh, Democrats. The Biden administration, though, I mean, uh, it strikes me has been a little bit ambivalent about this. You know, in your in your piece um, on the China narrative, you kind of critique the Biden administration for operating on the basis of technocratic managerialism rather than having a kind of what President Nixon might have called the lift of a driving dream um, yeah. to, to characterize its its policy. Could you talk a little bit about that? And, and because I think that there is sort of this ambivalence and we're about to have, uh, by the time our listeners are listening to this, we'll probably be in the midst of the uh, democracy summit. Uh, but th there seems to be a whole lot of, you know, ambivalence uh, about this, including with the invitations to who got invitations, who got included, who got excluded. I mean, yeah. some, some authoritarians, you know, 
justly, even though they might be NATO allies, got excluded. Uh, there were some other countries that got included that you wonder how they got on the list. Can you talk a little bit about all that? Yeah. So first, to be clear about techni- technocratic managerialism, it sounds it's one of those phrases that, again, ordinary Americans won't get. <laughs> uh, it's uh but but I'm I'm pretty good with technocratic managerialism as a base, right? Like especially after Trump, I'm glad that there there are interagency meetings happening, <laughs> and that there are policy reviews. So that's that's a good thing uh, as a base. But it's not an animating principle to just sort of manage and respond to things. So if you look at this team, and it's still not even a year into the Biden administration, they, they're they. You know, they put out interim national security guidance in February, a few weeks into it. And uh, that to me was important as a gesture, you know, to send to this different agencies and here's what we're trying to do and get done and send some signals and broad broad contours. But if you look at every um, sort of bigger piece or bigger speech that's been um, delivered either by President Biden or Secretary Blinken and others, it's often, you know, these long laundry lists of different priorities that are never prioritized, if you will, right? And so this this month is the Summit for Democracies. And I, you know, I'm all for it if if there's something concrete that comes out of it and that animates and brings the world together. Um, I'm not certain that, that, that that's what's going to happen here. And, and again, there's a reason why I brought up Lithuania, small country, but as a test case, it's it's sort of what we do in these instances. It's what we do in different places, and um, Syria, some of the toughest cases. That's what matters as opposed to the summits. Because I I remember, and I'm old enough, served in very junior positions in the Clinton administration. I'm old enough to remember the Summit of Democracies, or the Community of Democracies, I mean, um, in 2000. And again, a useful tool. I think some elements of that continued into the Bush administration, maybe. But it never was really channeled outwardly into something that, provided concrete benefit in the face of this new aggressive and assertive authoritarianism we see from the likes of Russia and China, nor was it turned inwardly, you know, to rally the American public in any clear way. It's sort of like a thing that we did uh, for a couple of years. And that's what I fear, or, or in this instance, maybe a few months. And it's a blip on the radar screen, but it doesn't animate either uh, the rest of the world to rally them behind something, um, or it doesn't animate you know, us here at home. And that's what I worry is like, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in the aftermath of, of this summit. Um, but I think the bigger challenge is, again, articulating in this complicated uh, domestic political context where we're so divided, where, where we started this conversation out, um, uh, where everything seems so black and white along partisan lines. Um, is to rise above that. And Biden has done this episodically. I think he did it quite well in the inaugural. He's, you know, he's done this in some of the speeches that he's done on a stump promoting his various stimulus measures or public investment measures here at home. He places these these investments in the context of America's role in the world and competition here at home. But it's only episodic. And that's that's the challenge is that for this to be a binding narrative, it actually has to be something that is the, a North Star. And I, I don't see that. Like I see long, longer laundry lists, you know, lists of important initiatives. And then we sort of move on uh, to different phases and, and respond to the news cycle. And that's that maybe it's even beyond a president to do that. Maybe it's sort of a, a wider initiative that you need to bring people from different 
ideological and political backgrounds to, to think and talk about. And then the important thing is not just make it a think tank white paper, but make it part of a broader conversation with the American public. Um, so instead of just listening to, uh, as we did in public opinion surveys, but then also trying to reach out and have a much more constructive conversation. I, I think there's, there's, there's an appetite out there just anecdotally for doing things like that because most Americans are just sort of turning, tuning out, uh, on a lot of things and they want to have like a bigger idea and be part of the conversation, but have that conversation not be so, uh, destructive here at home. Listening to you, Brian, I, I have to say that, uh, the thought that goes through my head is, you know, we've been suffering for some time from a deficit in really compelling political rhetoric. You know, we, we've we mentioned Reagan, we've mentioned FDR, we could have mentioned JFK, I think. Yeah. And those would have been strong foreign policy presidents whose foreign policy was strong in part because they could really articulate to the American people in ways that were not merely convincing, but but were powerful and in some ways inspiring. You know, what what is America's role in the world? What are the challenges we face? What should we uh, do about them? And there have been other presidents like that in the past, too. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, for example. But but really, if you think about it, none of our presidents in the recent past have had that ability to kind of consistently hit a high note. A- and what's worse, I have to say, I, I sometimes think it's almost like they don't even think that that's particularly important. Yeah, it's it's hard to find yeah hard to find time on the schedule f- for that because they're fighting a lot of the battles here at home. You look at, you know, uh, uh, but but that's I, I see the challenges interlinked, right? The the uh, drawing that connection between the challenges we face at home, and and what we're facing in the world. But the important thing, Elliot, I think that's been missing quite often is uh, I think it was H. W. Bush that called it the vision thing. It's actually painting a picture of what we want to achieve. So there are many reasons why Afghanistan was a strategic failure. So many reasons. But to me, a a, a key part of it is how we articulated our goals, our end goals. And especially, you know, what what I think was one of the bigger mistakes. I was against Obama's second surge in 2010, 2011, for a number of reasons. I spent some time on the ground in Afghanistan and it wasn't, I, I think they were trying to do too much in a limited period of time. But the important thing, if you look back at how they defined their goal, it was to disrupt, dismantle, and defeat Al-Qaeda and its affiliates. That You go back to the strategy documents publicly and then privately. You look at the different books that are out there. To me, that's it doesn't define what we want to achieve in a place like Afghanistan. What, what do you want to leave behind, um, in, a, in a sense? And I, I, I'd argue, like in World War II, yes, we wanted to defeat Nazi Germany and Japan, but then there was that follow-on work of then what do we want to construct and build and what do we want to help others construct and build? And that's that vision piece is is just consistently lacking. And if it's out there, like if you you guys probably remember, maybe even helped write it, uh, George W. Bush's second national security strategy, which included a lot of things related to AIDS and pandemic and other things. And I thought there was a lot to admire in there, but what it lacked was a North Star. Um, meaning it didn't have that central animating principle. It had a lot of bells and whistles, things that I think Obama himself took on board um, uh, in terms of, despite the rhetoric and political campaigns, there's a lot of consistency between different administrations. You know this, um, when foreign policy, you know, when the uh, administrations change hand, it's hard to change foreign policy dramatically in a short period of time. But but that's I think the main thing is that the the absence of, okay this is what we want to leave behind in the world and what America's role in it. And it's often not 
articulated. It's often just uh, an issue of sort of criticisms and counter criticisms. Well, Brian, I, I want to uh, thank you for uh, joining us today. Our guest has been Brian Catullus. You can read his work at the Liberal Patriot, which we've been talking about for almost the last hour. Uh, as Elliot said, there are a lot of rabbit holes uh, we could have yeah. gone down and didn't. Um, but that's good because that leaves us with a lot to talk to you about uh, the next time we have you on the podcast. Yeah, I'd love that. Great, great talking with you. And thanks for having me on. Great talking with you, Brian.